Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. Welcome, dear listeners, to Positivity Strategist. Today, I'm welcoming a very special guest to my show. Now, if you're in the leadership space, in human development, in human resources, in talent management, or skiing, you will know the name Lance Secretan. Dr. Lance Secretan is one of the most insightful and provocative leadership teachers of our time. He's the former CEO of a Fortune 100 company. He's a university professor and an award-winning columnist, and he's written 15 books on the topics of inspiration and leadership. He coaches and advises leaders globally, and he guides leadership teams who wish to transform their culture into the most inspirational in their industries. Lance, I'm delighted to welcome you to Positivity Strategist. Thank you for joining me. Good to be here, Robin. Thank you. (laughs) So today in my conversation with Lance, we're going to explore the topic of love. Love in a very personal sense. And also what love has got to do with leadership. Lance's latest book, just published, his 16th, is not a book about leadership per se, it's a love story. In fact, the title of the book is A Love Story, An Intensely Personal Memoir. Lance, this book is about the profound love you and your wife, Tricia, were blessed to share. It's a beautiful read. It's intensely personal. And Tricia, your wife, died in 2014 and you lived 30 years with each other. Lance, what was it like to write this book? Well, I, it was something I felt I wanted to do over the years that Tricia and I shared our, our glorious life together. Uh, I wrote a lot of poems to her, mostly, and I just gave them to her and then I squirreled them away. But after she passed away, I thought I must do something with those poems. So I polished them up and then I wrote the narrative around the poems. And so the book really is the story of our journey together, punctuated by the poetry. Yes, it's, it's beautiful. And at the end of every chapter, one of you write, one of you, you, you um, share one of your poems and you say that you wrote them at the moment. So at the moment that you were having the experience, was, is that what I'm understanding? Yes, that's usually the way. You know, something marvelous that happens, uh, for instance, when we we were in Africa together, uh, watching um, the valleys and the shimmering sun, that's when I wrote a poem called Lovelt Lesson, and so on. So each one typically was associated with an event or an experience or a time we were together. Yeah. And what does poetry do that prose doesn't? Well, poetry is a bit mysterious, I think. You can sort of slip in innuendo or reference without actually spelling it out. In speech or text, 
you have to be quite clear about what you're saying, otherwise it just sounds like a gobbledygook. But in a poem, there can be a bit of a mystery in it, and I think uh, I haven't always written poetry that way, and I don't really see myself as a poet, it's just that this is something that was written over the years. Uh, although people have been after me to write some more, so I don't know whether I'm going to do that or not. <laughs> Look, I'm going to invite you to read some of your beautiful poetry um, throughout our conversation. Um, and I, I have your permission to do that since we... I Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Um, and so I'd like to start by asking you to read the poem when you got the news of uh, Trisha's diagnosis. And I think it speaks to why poetry can say so much in very few words. And that mm. poem is entitled Be Gone, Dark Angel. It's actually on page 103. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that as anybody who's gone through this dreadful journey of cancer will understand, there's a great need for hope. We, we really need to think that we can fight this thing. And very often that succeeds. Sometimes it doesn't, but we need to go forward with hope. So this book, this, this poem... It's called Be Gone, Dark Angel. The rhythm of life so ordered and clear till the dark angel brings a message of fear. Dark one, what is it you wish me to learn? The choice is yours, only you can discern. My planet is rocked, my head is unclear, and first I retreat to a place of despair. But then my soul says, I decline this call. I'm out of here. Goodbye, you all. What delivered to me, I need not take. I am the king of my soul, lord of my fate. My partner for life takes orders from none. She will triumph, dark angel. So get you gone. Thank you. That's so beautiful. Hmm. Yes. And interestingly, immediately after that, you have a very short six-line poem called Home Movies. Yes, home movies. That's, that's one of those poems that's sort of, uh, I think, a, a mystery. You know, you can sort of read into that uh, really what you want to read. Um, would you like me to read it? I'd love you to. Okay, let me just find it. It's the next page. Home movies. The camera in my head plays old movies starring you. I play them every night, in the daytime too frame by frame, between live performances. Yes. And I imagine that's going to continue. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, yeah. indeed. And so, Lance, you start the book with um, Once Upon a Time. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the end, I was looking and the happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. And you end with another wedding, right? And your wedding vows rewritten. So, what's that life happily ever after? Well, um, I am working through this. You know, I will get through it. I think it's one of those journeys that uh, it seems so many other people also go through. I have two clients, for example, who share the same journey. And uh, we talk about it quite a bit together because we're all sort of going through this together. Although I, I'm not a person that needs therapy. I'm a person that uh, 
probably I've concluded I will not get over this, but I will get on with my life and I will love again. So I am looking forward to that. And that's the journey that I'm on. And as you know, I think that this relationship, it's, it's probably the most important. In fact, it is definitely the most important relationship in my life. But it informs me about a lot of other things, too. Yes, and I think, you know, um, we could talk about some of the themes that come up that apply to all relationships, you know, with ourselves, with others, and with the world at large. And some of those themes that, as I was reading your beautiful um, words and um, your memoir, was the words such as love, obviously, and connection and beauty and spirit and honesty and inspiration, I know, is a big thing for you and your professional life as well. And um, the value of hope and positive emotions, um, knowing why you're here and what you're doing. So I think one of the things that that I found very valuable in this um, outside the story itself was the, 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 um, the recommendations, the advice, the experience that you offer on how to build a deep abiding relationship. And this, of course, can cross anything from personal relationships to professional relationships. And so now I'm referring to page 97 and I, I, I'm hoping that people will go out and buy your book and kind of use these references. But on page 97, you, you list some of the things that you think are really significant in building a deep abiding relationship. So why don't we sp- focus a little bit on what some of those are, if you would, mm-hmm. uh, and um, some of the things that you find are most significant to you and in the work that you're doing and, um, and so on. Yes. Well, you see, one of the things that people always remarked on was the extraordinary relationship that we had. As one person said to me, you know, when the two of you walked into a room, the room lit up. There was an energy between us and our relationship. Everybody knew it. Everybody saw it. And a lot of people envied it. And we knew that. It wasn't something that was uh, unaware to us. And so... Trish and I at one point said, we should write a book about this because we've got something so special. We need to share it. Now, of course, we never got to write the book, but we did start writing some of the, what you might call bullet points, some of the key uh, concepts of what is it we have? What is it that's special? And they're not the normal things. I mean, there's a lot of things you would, of course, talk about. But for instance, one of the things is, is no secrets. And this was really important. I'd have people in my organization, for example, who would find Trish at a party or a company event or something, and they'd say to Trish, Trish, can I talk to you about Lance? Uh, I need to talk to you about him for a moment. And she would say, yeah, you know, that's fine. Of course you can talk to me, but you just have to know there are no secrets between us. So whatever you say to me, I may say to him. I may not, but you know, it depends on, that's my judgment, but there are no secrets. You need to know that. It's not like you can talk to me and have me say, I will not discuss this with him, it's a secret. I won't do that. And so we never had any secrets, and it's an amazing, liberating thing, you know, when you're with someone and you know everything's transparent. There are no hidden thoughts, secrets, ideas. And we would ask each other regularly, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What's happening? You know, and not in a quizzical or interrogative sort of way, but rather just, we're one. And that's another concept, I think, is the idea of being one, like seamless, united, 
twin, twin souls, one flame, you know. But on the other hand, being also individuals. Each of us has our own careers, our own interests, our own friends, uh, different tastes and foods and likes and you know, music and so on, but yet we're one. And, and that's a very paradoxical and yet critical aspect of a relationship. Um, the truth, very important to tell the truth. I think the, one of the worst things to destroy a relationship is betrayal and not telling the truth. I think it's very hard to climb back once you do that. It, you can do it, but it's hard work. And each time you do it, it's harder. Mm. I think touching, it's astounding. You see, I coach leaders all over the world, and it's astounding to me how little of the intimacy and the vulnerability and the humility and the tactile nature of things, how little of that prevails in their lives. Talk to me a little bit more about vulnerability in, um, you know, when you're working with leaders. What are you, how are you dealing with that? Well, we have an old-fashioned view of what leadership looks like. It's kind of like a frontier, Wild West, John Wayne, heroic system where senior leaders in organization think they have to look like warriors and be like warriors which means, of course, they have their suit of armor on and they're perfect and they don't make mistakes. And this is, in fact, paradoxically, repelling to followers. And though we admire strong people, strength comes in lots of ways. There's an old Native American saying, which is, it takes a strong man to be gentle. Mm. And that's the general idea here. And you know, Intimacy, vulnerability, so important in a marriage, are also important in leadership. And what many leaders don't understand is how appealing it is. So if you think about a puppy or a baby, what is it that makes us fall in love with something so gentle? It, it is that vulnerability. It is that innocence. It is that transparency. You're not getting any flim-flam from a baby. The baby says exactly what the baby wants to say and means what it says, which is the beauty of the relationship we have with that baby. Why don't we just do the same thing as leaders or indeed as partners in our marriages? It's the same thing. It's all one. Mm. Yes, interesting. When you say that, what comes up for me is if you're thinking about, you know, like a baby or a puppy or a little kitten or something of that, you know, there's a kind of desire to protect um, and look after. And I'm, I don't think you're looking for that quality in, a lead, in leadership, are you? Well, why not? Uh, because the old idea is that the leader has to protect the follower. But what about a leader who's protected by their followers? Well, what's wrong with that idea? I mean, you know, when... when uh, when we've seen this in history, when a nation has been under attack, you know, the followers squirrel away the leader so the leader is safe and protected. Mm -hmm. We do that in America, too. I mean, you know, if, if, if there's a crisis, the president gets on a plane and disappears to a place that nobody knows where it is, so he's safe. Yeah, so it's taking the other perspective there. So yes. there is that kind of mutual care. We're, that's right. We're very stuck in the last century and even the one before in the way we view these things. In the modern way, 
is to be much more transparent and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And you know, the internet has done an amazing thing for us that way, because essentially I look at the internet as our conscience. You can pretend to be something, but the internet's going to find you out. It's mm -hmm. going to show the real person that you are, one way or another. Yes, and it's also a way of connecting in another manner. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's um, right. I mean, one of my guests recently, a man whom I totally admire, Ken Gergen, was saying that it's no longer um, Rene Descartes in the 17th century talking about I think, therefore I am, but it's more I'm connecting, therefore I am. Yeah, that's indeed true. <laughs> yeah. and, and I love that, yeah. Yes. So a couple of other things come up for when I'm thinking about, you know, building a deep and abiding relationship. You've touched on a few things there. But it's also, and we've also touched on this notion of reciprocation. Um, and then there's the joy of rituals. So if you think about, you know, in your, in your love relationship with your wife, and then if we extrapolate that and think about other relationships that we have, let's talk a little bit about the joy of rituals. What are you... What are you implying when you say that? What are you suggesting to us? How does this really add to strengthening and deepening, deepening abiding relationships? Well, I think there are hundreds of, of rituals that one can introduce. And I don't mean this in any kind of manipulative way either, but just in a gentle way that is fun. And fun and play is a very important part, too, of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can hear this at two levels in a corporation or in a marriage. Fun and play are important in both of those. And in my case, for instance, with Trisha, I would always write a card for her and hide it somewhere in the house, a place that she would likely find it, and she knew this was going to happen, so she wouldn't start scurrying around the house looking for it too, too soon, so that she'd savor the moment for a time when it worked for her. But it could be, for instance, that it would be hidden behind the cream in the fridge where she would find it when she made her coffee in the morning. Or it could be somewhere where her makeup was when she put it on. Or it could be where her exercising room was so that she'd find it when she lifted a dumbbell or something like that. So, you know, I'd squirrel them away. Now, she'd do the same thing with me. And this was a ritual every time I traveled. So when I went away, she would stuff something in one of my shirts or a, a roll up inside a sock or it would be somewhere hidden in a in a carry-on bag and I would when I get to the hotel that where I'm traveling I would uh, open up this card with enormous joy a wonderful moment because I'm not with her but this is the next best thing it's a playful moment now just translate that into the kinds of things that many companies do do like you hear about Google and Facebook and so on we have parties and, and, and you're Gene Fridays and beer, beer fests and so on. All kinds of, those are rituals. Those are things that are fun and playful and inspire people. And it shows that you care, that you take the time. You've got to plan and prepare these things. So thought goes into it. And thought is love. So when I can see that great care was taken in doing something really special, that means a lot. It means a lot in the workplace. It means a lot in a marriage. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I think even like, you know, you punctuate our year, you know, with vacations and with um, 
holidays and so on. Yeah. And honouring those times together is an important part of our ritual, just taking time out to celebrate certain experiences, certain meaningful events in one's life. And you can create them just as you were doing. Um, I leave little notes when I go away under the pillow for my husband. So I fully understand and appreciate yeah. what you're suggesting here. It's beautiful. I think too that it's very important uh, for us to remember that any kind of disagreement or argument or little bump, you know, needs to go away as quickly as possible. Mm. They, they fester. Yeah. And if you, they have a, should have a shelf life of less than a day. And therefore, by the end of the day, and my, my mother-in-law always used to say to me, never go to sleep angry at your spouse. This is wonderful, old-fashioned Victorian advice. Mm -hmm. But in, think about the corporation. If you have an argument with an employee, settle it, sort it out, end with a state of grace before the day's over. Mm -hmm. This is inspiring. It's totally uninspiring to go home angry. Yeah, yeah. And so what comes up for me, Lance, when you talk about this, it is about a practice. I mean... We need to have we need to put these things into practice daily so they become so part of who we are. Yes. And it it also suggests some elevated consciousness about who we are being and how we are interacting in the world. So yes. there's a mindfulness that's part of this. Yes, and it's not hard work. It could be misunderstood as being in quotes work. It's not work. Mm -hmm. If you love another person it's not work. And at, in the workplace, it shouldn't be work either. Yes, of course, somebody's going to have to prepare and do the thing and spend the money and invest the time. But the joy that comes from it is more than compensating for the investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd like you to read another poem. Okay. <laughs> and I, I understand this is one of your favorites and it's called The Gifts I See When You Go Away. Oh, yes. And it may kind of be a little bit related to what we've just been speaking about. You know, this poem is written because I realized that sometimes we forget to say thank you and how much we appreciate a person when we're with them. As soon as we go away, we say, well, I can't find my socks or, you know, whatever it might be, some silly thing. But you realize, don't you then, that how important these, all these little things are in your life and how much you miss them. So the gifts I see when you go away. Priceless treasures from your heart and rainbows from your mind more clearly seen when we're apart for the one who's left behind. I see them when you're here and treasure all you do. But when you're no longer near, I love those sweet gifts anew. When two lovers are so close, it's easy to ignore the things that mean the very most. These sweet treasures I adore. Like a squirrel in a cage, I get as blind as can be, forgetting to pay homage for the gifts you give to me. The puzzling thing for me is that I more clearly see the gifts you give so freely when you're away from me. You'd entrust your very soul, needing nothing from me. Your absence makes a sacred whole, and I prize your gifts to me. Is everyone else like me when two souls are as one? Are you finding that you can see those gifts better when alone? Mm. Mm. How does that strike you now that Trish is gone? Well, I miss her 
every minute. But I am trying to get to a place where I value the memories and the joy and don't spend as much time as I have been on the pain. Mm-hmm. And that's easy to say and hard to do. But we had such a joyous time. And my work these days, as you've gathered in this conversation, is to share the learning of 30 wonderful years mm-hmm. in, two, in two ways. One, in the corporate world, which I hadn't intended, and I didn't really see the connection of that when I wrote the book. But I realize now how important it is. In fact, the relationship between a customer and a company, an employee and a company, is a marriage. Mm-hmm. And I also think I have some work that I can do usefully, especially with my coaching clients, where I can help them to build the kind of loving relationship that they yearn for. And so many of my clients, most of them high-powered, very successful, globally, around the world, they're sacrificing a lot for that. Yes, they're successful if you measure that in an external way, but what have they given up? And why do they need to give up anything? It's not a matter of a trade-off. In fact, and I so deeply found this in my own marriage, the joy and the deliciousness of a beautiful relationship is what I take to work every day. It's how I, it contributes to how I inspire other people. I couldn't do that without that much love in my life. If I had a really bad, crappy relationship where I was fighting and angry with my spouse and then I come to work, I'd be bringing that to work. I would be neutralizing the gifts I have by the toxicity of that. And therefore, to have the beauty of this relationship is actually just folding straight into my work. I just, I'm a better leader, I'm a better communicator, I just aspire more because I have it going on all over in my life. And Lance, it's also who you are and how you have constructed your reality now based on the gifts that the relationship that you had with Trisha, right? Yes. So it's, you know, you have chosen to do this because you're making meaning for it, from it and you're now passing that meaning on and you're spreading that with others and so you're kind of amplifying that beauty that you had. Yes. So that's a very special gift. And it's the sense-making, the meaning-making based on who you are. So how you can kind of then pass that on um, is what I'm understanding is very important and significant to you now. Well, I think it's also a matter of having no choice. You know, the Dalai Lama was once asked why he's always happy. Uh-huh. And his answer was, because it makes me feel better. Yes. Now this is you know, convoluted logic when you think about it. (laughs) But, you know, what's my choice? Mm -hmm. I can mope and I can moan and I can be angry, I can be miserable, I can do all those things. And by the way, this is not my first rodeo. You know, I lost a daughter when she was 19 and that was devastating. And, you know, I, I used that at the time to help people know that for instance, a man can cry, this is okay. I had never cried before that. And to share one's emotion is one more way in which we share our vulnerability. Yes. 
And it's one other way in which we become intimate. And the, you see, we're back to the old idea that, oh, man, leader can't cry. That sort of makes you look like a wimp or a sissy. And therefore, people won't follow you because they think you're weak. And that's just none of that is true. That's an old-fashioned idea. Simply not true. Mm. Barack mm. Obama cries publicly. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Yes, and for me, what you're saying is it's about our wholeness. Yes. If we deny that part of us, we're denying a very significant of who we are as a whole person. Yes, absolutely. And you know, if in my case, if my wife loves me for how I am in my relationship with her, then I just need to be that way everywhere else too because then my friends will love me for the same reasons and my followers will love me for the same reasons, my clients will love me for the same reasons. I just have to be the same, as you yeah. say, one. Yeah. And by the way, you know, to go back to Descartes, it's an illusion that it's separate. Mm-hmm. We just make that up. It's not separate. Mm. Yeah. It is one. Yeah. Yeah, so beautiful. And um, I just want to also remind you of something beautiful in the book that is just so joyful and playful and speaks to all of the stuff that we've been speaking about. And that's the story you tell of spirit. Yes. (laughs) Our wonderful dog. Yes, that's right. And so why don't you tell that story when spirit jumped up on the stage? I thought that was... Oh, yes. Well, um, spirit was an amazing dog. I mean... I don't know how we got so lucky to have such an incredible animal. Uh, Gave us such joy and gifts. And uh, another big moment in our lives when we cried because the loss was was wrenching for us. But uh, when she was younger, uh, I was invited to speak at a conference, which which was the American uh, Veterinary Association. So all the, the vets from all over North America. And huge conference, 3,000 people. It was in the convention hall. Enormous. And so Trisha and I decided, uh, they invited me to bring the, the dog. So uh, she was a Vizsla, a lovely uh, 35-pound sort of size dog. They built a kennel on stage for her. And uh, Trish took the front seat in, in uh, the front row in the conference hall, and I made my speech, and all was done. And Spirit was wriggling and trying to get onto the stage to me. But there was a big gap. It's kind of like an orchestra pit and so on. And finally, Trisha couldn't hold on to her. So Spirit bounded out of her lap, leaped up onto the stage, and leapt straight into my arms and started <laughs> licking my head. And I have no hair. She used to lick my head a lot. And so 3,000 people stood on their feet and gave me a standing ovation, or should I say gave Spirit a standing ovation. <laughs> it had nothing to do with me. <laughs> but there I was, standing on stage with a dog in my arms, having my head licked at the end of my speech. And how beautiful in, in front of 3,000 veterinarians. I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they perfect. built a, a lovely kennel for her on stage which had her name on it. So uh, she was part of the, part of the gig. A beautiful context, yeah. Well, that's really lovely. Look, so Lance, our time is coming to an end. I just want to thank you so much for um, sharing this beautiful work with the world. And um, I'm hoping many people will be inspired. I mean, inspiration is one of your big topics. You're known as, you know, the man, the leader for inspiring others and how you find inspiration um, and lead through inspiration. So I'm hoping that this is another channel for that. And um, people can contact you in which, how, through your website? Would you like just to... Yes, uh, that was at secretan.com, S-E-C-R-E-T-A-N.com. Great. 
And um, and there will be some show notes. Your episode, Lance, is positivitystrategist.com slash PS50, a nice round five zero. So an easy one for people to remember if they want to go and find links. I'll have your book there and other works too. So in my way of closing, I want to thank you so much and I would love for you, if you would, perhaps if you would like to read the poem, It Must Be You. I'd love to. So this poem was written after Trish passed away and I was sitting in my hot tub one morning, which is a ritual, one of our rituals, and uh, having a coffee and the sun was rising. Now Trish and I shared and loved a lot of things like, for instance, in our Colorado home, uh, the Alpenglow in the mountains, uh, maybe a, a Merlot in the evening, you know, the eclipse of the moon. Trish was very fascinated by astronomy and astrology. So there were many things that were beautiful in life. And as the sun came up, I realized that I kept asking the question, as I, I guess so many people in my situation do, where are you, Trish? Where are you now? Where physically do you live these days? And I kept asking that question and the sun came up and I looked at the sun and I thought, that must be you, Trish. It's beautiful. And that gave me a poem. And I wrote it right away in minutes. And this is how it goes. The call of the loon, the alpine glow, the eclipse of the moon, they're beautiful. So they must be you. The double rainbow, the mist in the veil, the silent snow, they're beautiful. So they must be you. A puppy's love, sunset and Merlot, the clouds above, they're beautiful. So they must be you. These favorite moments of magic and joy, here at least, they're beautiful. So they must be you. They say that God's in everything, the dances we share and the songs we sing, they're beautiful. So they must be you. I searched for you, looked everywhere, and then I knew everything's beautiful because it's you. Thank you, Lance. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. And remember, what you focus on grows. So grow towards your best. <laughs>